Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Jeremiah Roberts, one of the co-hosts here at Cultish. And it's the Super Sleuth right here with him. All right, we are super excited for this brand new episode. Uh, before we get in here, as you know, uh, we are into a new year. Uh, lots of projects in the works, lots of uh, challenging uh, but fun ministry work that we enjoy doing to put these this content possible for you. So if you want to support our podcast, allow this content to be a continued possibility. Go to thecultishshow.com. There is a donate tab. You can donate one time or monthly. And Andrew, what else is it brought to us by? Yeah, so while you're browsing the internet, don't close the browser. Go to apologiastudios.com and you can become an all-access member where you can get exclusive content that Apologia Studios produces. I mean, this podcast is not possible without Apologia Studios. I mean, we're sitting in the beautiful studio itself, right? Oh, yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, and then after that, you can go to shopcultish.com and get some sweet cultish merch. And if you have, and also if you have some sweet cultish merch, and if you have a beard to, to match that sweet cultish merch, uh, make sure you go to forgebeardco.com and use the code cultish uh, at checkout, forward slash cultish, and you can get 15% off of your order. And then if you have awesome cultish gear, if you have a delicious beard, or if you don't have a delicious beard, but you want some coffee to stay energetic throughout the day, you can go to missionfirstcoffee.com forward slash cultish, and there's, uh, you can get a nice little discount. Uh, when you check out, make sure you use, use the code cultish uh, when you check out. So um, our guest is a gentleman by the name of Daniel Stephen Kearney. Uh, he's someone we've been following on Facebook for a while. Uh, we are going to be talking about the gods of the new age. He has a very unique perspective given the type of work that he does. So enjoy the first part of this incredible conversation. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Eddie and... I was in a call. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. It started as an effort by a charismatic preacher to build a new society, but it ended, of course, with the tragic deaths of more than 900 people. Please, for God's sake, let's get on with it. We've lived, we've lived as no other people have lived and loved. We've had as much of this world as you're going to get. Let's just be done with it. Let's be done with the agony of it. This is a revolutionary suicide. This is not a self-destructive suicide. So they'll pay for this. They brought this upon us. You're in a cult. I love you, and I want you out of it and with Christ. But you're, you're, you're... mystery is the seventh largest landmass and second most populated nation in the world. It is rich in resources and manpower, yet its people are among the poorest and most suffering on earth. Millions of Indians suffer from malnutrition, disease, and poverty. The people are apathetic because their religion has taught them to be detached observers, disregarding the agonizing lifestyle which imprisons them. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Cultish, Entering the Kingdom of the Cults. My name is Jeremiah Roberts. I am one of the co-hosts here. I am joined, uh, as always, by Andrew, the super sleuth of the show up in Harriman, Utah, 
Andrew, it is good to see you recording a little bit later than usual, but it's good to see you as always. Yeah, man. First recording of 2022. Very excited. Yes. uh, Super excited for this episode. And so uh, what you just heard there was a small clip from a uh, documentary produced by uh, Jeremiah Films, uh, same uh, name as myself, but uh, around the time I was born, probably. And it's about, it's a documentary called Gods of the New Age. The premise of the documentary, it's very, if you listen to it, if you look, you can look it up on YouTube. It's very well done. And it really just has an emphasis on the uh, spiritual history of India, because that's where a lot of the New Age practices that we see, like beliefs in reincarnation, you know, meditation, yoga, a lot of these ideas that are becoming so popularized right now, it's... Its origination is in India. So we have uh, with us today to talk about that, kind of an updated version of 2022, an updated version of God's The New Age. We have uh, with us uh, Daniel Stephen Kearney, who's actually coming to us uh, from uh, India right now. Uh, Daniel, how are you, my friend? It's good to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, yes, by the grace of our Lord, I'm doing well. And by the way, I'm actually in the country of Nepal. Okay. I was kicked out of India. So. Oh, Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, and that's why we need to have you uh, make sure you give us all the all the ins and outs uh, of all that. So, but yeah, it's, it's currently it's it's six p.m. our t- it's a little after six our time. Well, actually, almost six o'clock. What time is it there right now? Six forty-two a.m. Okay, excellent. And so, uh, just tell us. I mean, I kind of gave a description. You're over there. You're someone as a uh, missionary, and you have spent uh, a quite a bit of time in India. Kind of, you have a very unique vantage point. But give everyone the the quick Cliff Notes LinkedIn uh, resume of who you are, what you do, and what you're all about. All right, brother. So, yeah, yes, I. Um, my name is Dan Kearney, and um, originally from New York. The Lord saved me as a boy when I was 12 years old, and He. Uh, put a burden on my heart for the South Asia, particularly India. And in 2009, I got a one-way ticket and flew to India. And we've been living here with my family for close to uh, going on 11 years now. And my wife is a native to India. I found my wife in India. We were married in India. Oh, wow. The Lord has, yeah, yeah. The Lord blessed us with six children. And we've been involved in church planting Leader, leader training, indigenous leader training, uh, open air preaching, and uh, philanthropy and social works. We've seen three orphanages started, and we've drilled wells and engaged in relief missions and humanitarian works. Uh, of course, coupled with the preaching of the gospel and uh, going to uh, making mission trips to unreached areas. This is what we've been doing. Okay, so maybe if you could, and I, I appreciate you kind of giving that uh, that. That description there. Explain just real quickly, because it sounds to me like I'm a, I'm a little bit behind in my, uh, it's been a while since I've done a full geography class, because um, we're going to be talking about primarily uh, India, but just kind of tell us about the general geographical locations, because you mentioned Nepal, and again, I, for some reason, I assumed it was a, a state in India, but just kind of tell you, but tell us just a little bit about that geographical location, and where it is in conjunction to India. Okay, so Nepal is basically the small uh, Himalayan country. Uh, it was the world's last Hindu kingdom. Uh, it, it's sandwiched between the behemoths of China to the north and India to the south, the two most populous countries on earth. Yeah. Uh, so Nepal is literally w- between a rock and a hard place. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so 
Yeah, um, yeah, the, the British attempted to conquer Nepal, but they could not conquer Nepal. And it has been an independent sovereign land for, um, for, for history, throughout history. Mm-hmm. So okay. now the Communist Party controls the country. Uh, oh, wow. But yeah, that's, as far as the geography goes, it's, yeah, it's right there between China and India. Okay. Yeah. And so could you just, uh, we talked a little bit on our, in initially on Zoom, just kind of just to kind of get some ideas in preparation for the podcast. So starting at the very beginning, uh, you know, you look at just India as a whole, when you think about the primary religion coming out of it, it's the religion of Hinduism, as you just mentioned. And the, and from that, a lot of the prominent New Age practices, worldviews, and just a lot of things that you're seeing now here in the West, because you've done, not only, you've not only been in Nepal and in those areas, but so you've also have been doing work in the West, and I'm sure there's many ways in which you've seen that uh, take root as far as new age practices here. But start at the beginning, maybe you can kind of give us a background because you were talking about uh, India and its connection to ancient Greece. Um, tell us just a little bit about that. Give us a quick, some Cliff Notes history of India uh, and also its relationship to where it really became a uh, Hinduistic uh, sort of empire. Right. Well, the history of India is very ancient. It's one of the three original, most ancient civilizations right alongside the Mesopotamian and Egyptian society. The Harappan civilization dates back to as far as around 2000 BC. And um, the Hindu scriptures, uh, specifically the the Vedas, uh, specifically the Rig Veda uh, is dated at 1700 BC. So um, it's, very, very ancient uh, document around the time of Moses um, is when these Hindu scriptures came to be. And so Hindu society, Hindu civilization, Hindu culture uh, has been, yes, for millennia, around for millennia. And it, 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 there's been a lot of invasions into the, in the Indian subcontinent, uh, particularly by the uh, Indo-Aryans from the north, from Iran. Hmm. And uh, yes, when they invaded, they, they stratified society. They stratified uh, their subjects uh, into castes so that they would preserve their ethnic and racial purity in their mind. And uh, the word caste comes from a Sanskrit word, which means uh, color. The word varna in Sanskrit means color. Sanskrit is basically the source code of all Indian languages. It's, it's, it's like the as Latin is to Romance languages, so Sanskrit is to South Asian uh, Indian languages, even also the language of Nepal mm-hmm. and the language of Sri Lanka. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, th- this is the, the history. And, and the, uh, Islam conquered um, uh, India for about a thousand years. The Mughal rulers, Mughal Empire, mm. uh, uh, ruled the different kings who ruled throughout India. And then, of course, the European colonizers came, the, 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 Dutch, the, Portu- uh, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the French, and finally, the, the British East India Company. Hmm. And then there was a mutiny in 1857. And the mutiny of 1857 uh, resulted in the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, taking direct control over the uh, over India and, and India being called uh, the, the Empire of, of India and, and the Queen being called the Empress of India. After the there's no longer the, through the, the British East India Company. And uh, and then in. August 18th, 1947 is the date of India's independence from British rule. And, um, wow. So, yeah. Is, is that, um, so is there areas too, and you can jump in here as well too, like when you think about, um, 
you know, remnants of history. When I think about India, I think about just the history and it being really a primarily spiritual occasion. Look at the different, you know, temples and, and the different areas, especially people in the West. You think about the people like George Harrison who made trips over to India, you know, when he was around. And, and just that's just the perception a lot of people have now. But are there remnants similar if you went to... Uh, like Gettysburg. I remember going there as a, at being in high school and there's times where you, the tour guides would say you can be you can be walking the grounds and you'll find a random, uh, you know, just, just like a random musket ball or just some of the remnants of the past. In regards to the previous occupations, whether it was the British colonial occupation and their, and their time there or the, uh, or when Islam had, con- had conquered it as well too, can you kind of see remnants of that or are there anything indicative in that area of what you see or, or is that, is that just kind of a long, really for the most part long lost? Oh no, there are many vestiges of the previous rulers and yes, uh, previous governments over India. Oh, definitely. The architecture is reflected in the architecture. Um, uh, yes, battlegrounds. It, it is quite remarkable. I mean, of course the, the icon of India, the Taj Mahal mm-hmm. was built in, was built by Shah Jahan, a Muslim ruler. And, he burned, he, he was a, a radical Muslim. He burned down many Hindu temples mm. in his day. Uh, he was, you know, a Muslim zealot. And uh, so you, you see the, for instance, the Muslim architecture, you see vestiges of those pasts throughout India. Oh, definitely, brother. Yes, sir. I got a okay. question too. So um, throughout the time of India going through different uh, kingdoms, conquering it and things of that nature, how did they retain their Hinduism? Did Hinduism stay uh, was it, did it stay similar or did it amalgamate from different cultures over that time? Did it change over time? Right. Hinduism a very essentially is syncretistic. So it tends to absorb other worldviews, other religions. It doesn't refute them. It doesn't seek to uh, distinguish itself from other faiths. Rather, it absorbs other faith traditions and augments them to its existing worldview and it, it's uh it's existed uh, by uh, yes absorbing these different worldviews into itself in that way gotcha thank you okay yeah and then uh one of the things too i wanted is before we kind of getting i definitely want to hear some of your stories so if anybody is friends with you on facebook and i've been there for a couple of years it is you you have quite a unique ministry i mean you're kind of going into really sort of these back areas of not the touristy side of India, but really kind of going into these back cities, you know, and, and just talking about these areas. We'll get in, into that in a second, but it's something that's very unique and you have a unique vantage point. But one of the things I want to articulate is that you're seeing an underlying worldview. I mean, the the demographic and the geographical location, what you do in ministry, and we'll and by the time we'll, we'll place, we'll show some clips of your minister on our social media when you record this. It's just you're seeing an environment that's been radically affected by the Hinduistic worldviews. So we're going to spend a little time uh, defining terms. So the primary scriptures in Hinduism uh, are the Vedas. And so we actually just pulled, uh, this is from uh, God Answers, but it's just saying that the main text of Hinduism are the Vedas. um, And it mentions a couple others. And it's a compilation of hymns, incantations, philosophies, rituals, poems, and stories which the Hindus base their beliefs. Uh, Other texts used in Hinduism include the the Brahmas, the Sutras, and the uh, Aranyakas. I believe that's how you pronounce it. So, um, yeah, what I'd be curious about, Daniel, is 
give us just some of the give us a full maybe just a general description of of the Vedas from your perspective and also what is it like culturally in India? Are people really familiar with the Vedas? Is it something that they just kind of know in passing? Or are there sections where it's very poor and destitute where people are illiterate? And like what do the how does that what does that look like in real life for you over there in the ministry that you do? Right. Well, the the word Veda is from a Sanskrit root uh, ved, which means knowledge. And we have a remnant of that word in our word video, for example. The word video comes from a Proto-Indo-European word, uh, which is cognate a relation to the word ved, which is uh, knowledge. Oh. So the, the Vedas, they believe, yes, were sources of knowledge written. The Rig Veda, the most ancient one, right, written around uh, 1700 BC. And this particular Veda is basically uh, songs and, and melodies composed to their various Vedic deities. And the gods of Vedic India are different than the gods of India today. There was the god Igni fire. Uh, the god of, of lightning was Indra. These are the ancient Vedic gods. And the, this fascinating, the Vedas are not known by most Indians. Uh, the Vedas are written in Sanskrit. And only the Brahmin caste, the priestly caste, knows Sanskrit and are allowed to read Sanskrit. So the lower mm. caste, which the vast majority of India's population is from the lower three castes, um, like I think something like 80% of the Indian population is not Brahmin. As a result, they do not have access to the Vedas, nor are they allowed to read the Vedas, but they will, everyone will recite mantras, which are just basically um, like verses of song and and they believe they have magical properties and create vibrations that will be auspicious and will be you know, good luck. And they will drive away bad omens and drive away evil and misfortune. If they say these particular mantras, they repeat these mantras mindlessly or repeat the name of God as the Ishkan cult does, the Hare Krishna, the you know, International mm -hmm. Society for Krishna Consciousness, for example. Um, so that, that's the Vedas. I mean, the very popular book, the book that hin Hindus aggressively distribute in India is not the Vedas, though. It's the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita, which is, is like the core text of the larger epic called the Mahabharata, that is the most uh, aggressively distributed, aggressively disseminated Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, which means the song of the Lord. Um, and by the way, collectively, all of Hindu scripture is about seven times larger, seven times more voluminous than our Bible. Um, so it, 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 there's a lot to it, but it, it's very, I'm sorry to say, very incoherent, very contradictory. And it, it's, and the, the Bhagavad Gita is a war epic. Many of the Hindu scriptures, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, they are war epics, and they call for war. And this is why, in my experience, the Hindus have been extremely violent. It's a misconception, my brothers, to think that Hinduism is a nonviolent religion. And that misconception came from Gandhi, the, the, the so-called father of India, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, which they call him Mahatma, which means great spirit. His name is Mohandas Gandhi. But Gandhi um, coined a word called ahimsa. Ahimsa means nonviolent resistance. And he called for the nonviolent resistance of India against mm. the British rule. Yeah. But his philosophy of nonviolent resistance was adopted and adapted from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount. He loved the New Testament. Gandhi used to sleep with a copy of the New Testament under his pillow. And he said that Jesus was the greatest uh, religious and moral philosopher the world has ever seen. And, and he believed, as many Hindu gurus do, that the, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest piece of religious text and the greatest moral sermon the world has ever known. And so Gandhi, you know, appropriated the Sermon on the Mount and the doctrine of, of you know, turn the other cheek. And, and he stole that from Christianity. And so today people say, oh, Hinduism is a very nonviolent, very peaceful religion. No, that's in spite of, not because of uh, Hindu doctrine. Hindu doctrine is actually quite uh, violent, quite xenophobic. The whole caste system is based upon xenophobia and based upon um, hostility and, and, and um, rejection of people of a different ethnic group. Mm. And so, it is, yeah, this doctrine of nonviolent resistance was appropriated from the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> And it's, it's just it's a misconception because in my experience, brothers, the Hindus are extremely violent, extremely violent. They resort to bullying tactics. And yes, they've made many attempts on my life as I've preached the gospel in India. Oh, wow. Andrew, uh, wow. What, what questions do you have here just from what, yeah, what yeah. Daniel so has talked about so far? The Bhagavad Gita is available to all castes? Um, yes, yes, yes. That, that's right. Now, it's been translated into English. I mean, it's available to all castes. Um, it, it's not considered having like the magical properties that the Vedas have, but the Bhagavad Gita, that's basically like the four gospels or, or the Torah, if you will, of the of the Hindu scriptures. That's the most popularized. That's the, the most read. And when, when Westerners convert, you know, go to India, like we saw in, the, in that film, Gods of the New Age, when the Westerners come over, it's that text that they read. That text has been translated into English. I was on a train once in India, right? I was on the train and this guy comes up to me in these saffron robes, you know, these, these orange robes. And he's a German guy, he's a white guy. And, and I inquired, and he, he told me he's from Germany and he's over here trying to sell me a copy of an English translation of the Bhagavad Gita. And when, when the prime minister of India met the, the previous uh, pr pr uh, prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, he gave him a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. He didn't give him a copy of the Vedas, he gave him a copy of the Gita because our, the prime minister of India is trying to spread Hinduism. He's a Hindu missionary. Mm. And um, in reference to the Vedas, the prime minister of India, Narendra Modi, believes that the, the myths of the Vedas are actual factual history. He believes yeah. that there were airplanes in ancient India, that there was advanced technology. He believes, get this, get this, like, for example, that the god Ganesh, who is depicted as having an elephant's head of, attached to a human body, that this per, this creature actually existed thousands of years ago in ancient India. And this that this corroborates the fact that uh, apparently that there were uh, plastic surgeons and, and geneticists who were able to manipulate, uh, you know, matter and able to put human heads, hybrid animals, uh, hybrid uh, creatures, uh, he believed that's actual factual history. I can send you a quote to that effect. This is the mm -hmm. level of, of um, stupidity we're dealing with. I'm, so, I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to say, spiritual blindness, man. Very smart Indian people. Yeah. So do you, do you think people coming from like America, they go to visit uh, India, do you think there's like a massive uh, like awakening to them where they go, wow, this isn't necessarily the peaceful place that I thought it was going to be. Like there's a, a weird disconnect going on. <clears throat> right, well... When people come to India, the thing is, the power of bias and preconception is significant. Um, 
And in their mind, you know, land, India is the land of, of mystery. It's an exotic uh, land of paradox and, and everything is illusion. And so th they're already determined to in interpret India in this way. Um, they're not objective because to any objective observer, when you come to this part of the world, India or Nepal, as soon as you land here and as soon as you leave the airport, you're overwhelmed by the sights, the sounds, the smells, by the despair, by the poverty, uh, by the, the, the disorder, the, the cacophony of traffic, the, 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 the sad condition and the sad uh, living conditions. It breaks your heart. The obvious disorder that is a, a, a direct consequence of this demonic Hindu worldview. Mm -hmm. Wow. One more question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jerry. I'm just, no, you're good. You're uh, good. When you said caste means color, uh, is there anything uh, specific to like the color of the skin showing like the lineage and like people with darker skin or lighter skin get treated differently within the caste society? Does that mean anything? D definitely. And um, it's very uh, common, especially in South India, where people are much darker than North India. Uh, for young ladies, for example, they, they put uh, powder, they put white powder, uh, like uh, a talcum powder on their face before they uh, go outside. They want to look fairer. It's everyone's attempt to, uh, yeah, they want to be upwardly mobile. They want to look fairer. I mean, yeah. you know, while Americans go to tanning beds to look darker over here, people look, <laughs> want to. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, well, another question too, just coming back on what you said earlier with the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita being contradictory, what would be some example? give us some examples of where that would be contradictory uh, and, and where do you think those contradictions stem from? Is it, is this something to do just with the underlying worldview of it being pantheistic where there's not really an absolute, uh, with it, with, with basically having a worldview of oneism? Well, uh, right. Well, basically the, the thesis of the Bhagavad Gita is that there's a great battle called the Kadukshetra battle. There are five kings, the Pandavas, and they are engaged in a civil war with uh, another kingdom that are closely related. They're all basically one big family. This is a, uh, this is a large scale uh, family feud. That's what the, the, the theme of the Bhagavad Gita is. It's a narrative uh, book. And um, Arjuna, one of these kings is a, is a, uh, an archer, he, he shoots arrows, and the god Vishnu descends in one of his ten avatars, because according to Hinduism, the god Vishnu, the preserver, has ten avatars, and one of them being Krishna, one is probably his most prominent uh, avatar, or, or the word avatar means descent, and we understand it as an incarnation of a deity. So Vishnu comes down as Krishna, and is his uh, charioteer. He's his chariot driver. While Arjuna shoots his arrows, you know, he drives him into the battlefield. Yeah. And the book is basically a dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna, where Arjuna is very hesitant to go to, to fight. Like, I don't want to go and kill my, my teachers, my uncles, my brothers, my family. And Krishna is basically rebuking his apparent cowardice, saying, you know, man up. You've been brave in battle before. Uh, don't worry about killing these people because they're going to be reincarnated anyway. And it's their karma. They're going to get, get what's coming to them. And so I, I like to tell people the Bhagavad Gita teaches people to, to kill their family where our Lord taught us to love our enemies. Mm. It's, 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 yeah, it, it's, a, it's a quite um, tragic reality. The Bhagavad Gita is a war epic and it calls for and advocates for violence. This, non, this conception of Hinduism as, as a peaceful religion, it's a misconception. That mm. was, a, again, a result of Gandhi appropriating the Sermon on the Mount and attempting to 
uh, augmented to his Hindu beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned initially with with the origins of the caste system, as you mentioned earlier, is that also uh, is directly connected to the level of spirituality or awakening? Is that my, you talking about the people who were in the higher caste systems versus the lower systems? Uh, they would have maybe more access on some level. I mean, I would say like almost like a priesthood access on an esoteric level in the higher caste versus the lower caste. Is it kind of set up in that way? Because you mentioned that too in relation to this people having more access to the Sanskrit in the higher in the higher classes. Precisely. The goal of reincarnation, what's known as samsara, this is the Sanskrit word for reincarnation, is to be born up the caste scale, up the the, the caste ladder. So yeah. you need to, if you're a lower caste person, you need to be reborn into a higher caste, a higher caste, eventually as a Brahmin. Um, and then after that, you are released, which is moksha. You're released from the wheel, the endless wheel of reincarnation. Of course, there's a, there's a few... Um, you know, uh, quick, uh, what do you call it? Shortcuts. There's a few shortcuts. Like for instance, if you're a widow in, 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 in ancient India and you just, you know, managed to commit ritual suicide after your husband died, you threw your body on his funeral pyre and what was called, what was known as sati, uh, she would get instant release from the wheel of reincarnation, instant hmm. heaven. Yeah. Uh, so there, or yeah. Yeah. So it's very tragic. Very tragic. Wow. It's almost William like Carey, the, the missionary William <laughs> Carey. I'm sorry to cut you off real fast, but the, good. the missionary William Carey, the great, you know, father of modern missions, he was the one who lobbied against the practice of sati or the, the of widow burning and successfully lobbied against it. So it's no longer allowed in India. Mm. It's a Christian wow. missionary who did that. Wow. That's good, man. It's in, it shows you uh, what the, the spirit is behind uh, this force of Hinduism, right? The spirit is not the spirit of God, man. It's telling women to throw their bodies as widows onto the burning pyre of their husbands and they'll reach salvation of some type. That is, that is a scary, scary thing to think about. Wow. Yeah. It'll break your heart. My friend, it's, they consider you know, widows to be a burden on society. Women in general are considered to be less valuable than men. And to this day, female infanticide, uh, you know, sex selective abortion is rampant throughout India. It, it's common uh, for people even to murder uh, their post-born uh, little girls to, mm-hmm. to just strangle them and or and, and to, to to dispose of their body. In my church in India, um, the church I was sent out from, there was a, a man. He he was using the restroom and he heard the crying of a little baby. And he realized that that was a girl who had been abandoned to oh. die, left out in the open, just like the ancient Romans did. They're still doing to this day in this part of the world. Mm. And he adopted her and took her in his home. It's a beautiful story. Wow. But it's common in India to, to yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, another question I have too, because uh, we're, we're mentioning the caste system and some of the roles of the uh, the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita is um, just the nature of the, the Indian language of Sanskrit. Um, just because I know that there are certain gurus and even people who are popular today who kind of put an emphasis just on that language as a whole of it having on some level, some sort of esoteric value to it. And Andrew, uh, just so you guys know too, Andrew's uh, son poet is probably the biggest fan of Spider-Man, uh, you could possibly imagine. (laughs) Um, and where I'm going with this, Andrew, is that you saw, you saw Spider-Man No Way Home, right? Yes. So... In Doctor Strange, towards the very end, when they're trying to get all the different characters back 
to the different multiverses when they got those uh, circles or portals, the lettering on all the portals is Sanskrit. So because uh, Doctor Strange in the Marvel Universe, he's a fictional character, but a lot of the spirituality that's actually depicted in those films, you know, I don't know if you've seen those, but th- it's talking about real tangible spirituality that a lot of people, you know, are, are into and, and practice. So there's a level, while it is fictional, it's also not fictional. But just back to the issue of Sanskrit, uh, just from what you know about the history and also talking about the different demonic activity, we'll jump into that in a second. But is there any is there any credibility that you see in connection to just Sanskrit or the way that people kind of look up or sort of adhere to that language as it's some sort of holy writing on the wall? Correct. It's, it's considered a holy language, much like the Roman Catholics venerate Latin, and they believe that Latin is the uh, holy language, and they do their mass often uh, in Latin. It, it corresponds to the Indian conception of Sanskrit, or for example, the Muslims, uh, how they venerate Arabic, mm. and how there's madrasas that teach Muslim children to read and speak Arabic. Even in India, for example, you'll see madrasas where the Muslim children have to learn Arabic. So mm. for Hindus, Sanskrit is their holy language. That's the language that the mantras are encoded in. And so you're going to memorize certain uh, phrases. And our Lord Jesus, of course, taught in Matthew chapter six, you know, the Gentiles think that they'll be heard for their much speaking, but do not heap up empty phrases. Uh, Your father knows what you need before you ask. And they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Hmm. We see that exactly happening in India with people mindlessly uh, repeating mantras, or or like, the, again, the Ishkan, the Hare Krishnas, uh, saying, oh, uh, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare 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 Krishna. They think they'll be heard for their much speaking. It, it's just, as the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 14, if I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray with my understanding also. Mm. So it, it's, it's tragic. Like the, the late great Dr. R.C. Sproul says, uh, the Lord calls us to the, to the renewal of our minds, not the removal of our minds. Mm. And that's why you see this whole pluralistic worldview uh, coming in, it, it's yeah, it's all an import from uh, India, from Eastern religion. Okay. Wow. Do do you see um like the 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 constant mantras and all of these things and going with um samsara trying to go move up the caste system? Do you see it as being a very selfish religion? Like the reason why all of these things are taking place is so you can continue to move up for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. reach uh, mokshi that you're that you're saying earlier. Yeah. Milkshake. <laughs> Milkshake. <laughs> but do, do you find that though? Like in, in the culture itself, there, there's a lot of maybe selfishness in a sense. Exactly. Brother, uh, the, uh, the, the goal of the yogi, the goal of the Hindu devotee is to escape this wheel of reincarnation and to acknowledge that all of what the senses interpret as reality is actually not reality. It's an illusion. It's Maya. And the word Maya means that which is not in Sanskrit. It's just, it's an illusion. And that suffering is, is actually uh, good for the poor, the poor and the lower castes, they suffer. If, if they're blind, they were born blind. That's because of sins in a previous incarnation. So in this way, Hinduism discourages charity and mercy and acts of compassion, acts of benevolence, because According to the Hindu um, soteriology, uh, the doctrine of Hindu salvation, 
uh, a person is suffering, they're working out their own salvation, right? Don't interfere with cosmic justice. Mm. That person is begging, that person, you know, squats in the mud, that person's blind or lame as a result of sins that need to be atoned for. And since they have no savior, they have no substitute for their sins as we do our Lord Jesus, they believe they have to be afflicted. Hmm. And so if someone comes along and tries to alleviate their suffering by uh, showing mercy and giving charity to them, helping them, uh, they are actually hurting them. They're in a sense, wow. they're prolonging their, uh, yeah, they're pro prolonging their, their, their suffering. They need to suffer. They need to just burn away their sins. It's almost as if they're living on in purgatory on earth and let, yeah. them, let them suffer. Well, it's almost as if they're spiritual felons like from a past life, you know, where, right. you know, there's certain people all of a sudden you, you, you get a felony and maybe whatever the consequences are, there's certain jobs you can't get anymore. You can't own a firearm, uh, you know, like what have you. And, but then now this is, this is like the same situation. Like you see people on the street and that, that would make sense because I think whenever you see any, anything depict anything happening in the world, you know, whether it's charity, whether it's people in destitution, you know, whatever the the climate is, there's always an underlying worldview that's really creating that climate for what it is. And so I think even when you kind of look at the last two years on a total side note, just just with COVID and the polarization of what us versus them, you know, on everything from, you know, the mandates to uh, everything going on in Canada right now as we speak, uh, to even like things that you had to face with some of the challenges you've had when you recently uh you know with your time in new york like there's all there's an underlying worldview behind right. you know you doing the ministry that you do and also the people that you're talking to and how they're reacting for sure um another question i have as we, we kind of scroll down here is uh just to kind of defining terms and we'll kind of go into as well too how this has affected india and also uh ways in which you kind of see this carrying over into the west so hinduism uh next to mormonism is probably the most polytheistic religion in the world and so you've got you know three on 30 million gods but you know there there tends to be a focus around uh, God specifically. So we kind of get, can you go ahead and just uh, give us the outline? We, we're talking about Brahma, uh, you have Shiva, and you have, and you have uh, and Vishnu. So maybe to kind of go and help, help us like to find those terms, because when you think about Hinduism and those specific gods, uh, those come to mind. So just tell us all about those and like how that's actually carried out in India as a whole in Nepal. Right. So the three primary deities in Hinduism are called, they're called the Trimurti. Trimurti is the Sanskrit word for Trinity. Yeah. Or three idols, specifically. Tri, like our word, uh, um, tri, the prefix tri, like in Trinity or trilogy. And then Murti. Murti is the word for idol, actually. Uh, three idols. Um, Brahma uh, is considered the creator god. Uh, Vishnu is the preserver god. And Shiva is the destroyer god. Um, you know, due to a due to a curse, uh, Brahma does not have many temples in India. Very very few temples. Very few people directly worship Brahma. It's due mm. to some curse that's found in the Puranas. <laughs> it's fascinating. Uh, Vishnu is, is worshipped greatly in India, specifically with regards to his ten avatars. He has specifically ten <clears throat> incarnations. One of them is Krishna. <clears throat> One of them is a great turtle, I, I, by the way, which according to Hinduism, there was a great global flood and Krishna manifested himself as a turtle and saved the world on his back. 
Okay. Oh, wow. That's one of his. And another avatar of Vishnu is a, is a giant boar, a giant wild pig. Another avatar, get this, is the Buddha. They believe that Vishnu uh, incarnated as the Buddha to as a punishment for disobedient Hindus. So he incarnated as a false prophet to lead them astray. That's, that's right. Wow. That's. Yeah. <clears throat> I never knew yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's one of his avatars. Uh, they're anticipating the final avatar of Vishnu, where which will which will in uh, uh, which will bring in the what's called the Kali Yuga or the time of Kali, where the goddess Kali will ride on a white horse and bring in the end of the world. Just like the the Muslims have the Mahdi riding a white horse, now the Hindus also have a, a mythology of a white horse at the end of time. Obviously, ripoffs, you know, satanic I uh, imitations of Revelation nineteen when our Lord rides mm -hmm. a right horse. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, 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 so what happens real quick at the at the end of the consummation of all things in Hinduism? What happens then with people who are still in, in sam samsara? Right? Like, do they just like what 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 do they believe? Right? Like, it just ends. Their their chances are over, and then there's like psh, psh, gone or something. Uh, that that's a good question. I I have not studied that particular question in depth uh, presumably exactly yeah your time's up you know if you didn't get out of the wheel of information by now um there is hell oh the hindus believe in hell my friend um so yeah hell is a very uh legitimate concept in in hinduism um yeah it just shows how co uh, conscience is on on the minds of all of god's uh creatures of all god of all humans yeah. so yeah they'll, they'll be thrown into hell if, if they've not escaped the wheel of reincarnation so and then there's Shiva, the third god, who is considered the destroyer, and they say he has a third eye, uh, and when he opens his third eye, is when the world will be destroyed. Hmm. They have different takes on the end of the world. They have different eschatologies, and there's the Shiva cult, the Vishnu cult. There are some who worship Shiva more than the other gods, um, and Shiva is depicted as a kind of a rough character. He's depicted as a long-haired uh, dude that. Uh, is covered in the ashes of the dead and who smokes ganja. He, he's considered like a, a disreputable character, you know, an indecent fellow. Where Brahma and Vishnu are depicted as like very conservative in their appearance, in their hairstyle, in their in their manners. You know. But Shiva is like this 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 rough, rough looking dude, a dirt, dirty guy. Uh, and and so the Shiva cult has spawned this whole the whole, uh, the many of the, the gurus, for instance, and in, in the Nagi cult, these gurus who put the ashes of the dead on them, uh, and 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 they cut themselves and they smoke ganja and and they they follow tantric rituals, and and, and heterodox rituals. This is under the Shiva cult. Mm. So the uh, yeah, so all Hindus will worship all three, and and most Hindu temples in India have what's called the Shiva lingam in the temple. The Shiva lingam, my friends is Shiva's phallus, man. It's an ithia phallus. It, it's a reproductive organ. And, it, and it's, in, it's, in the, it's in a dish. And that plate is called the yoni. The yoni is the Sanskrit word for um, a woman's reproductive organ. So in most temples, there's a Shiva lingam. It's a, it's a cone and in the dish. And it, it, so they're worshiping, you know, re reproductive organs. It's mm. a fertility cult. And most Hindus have no idea. They don't know that they're actually bowing before a representation of supposedly their God's reproductive organ. It's mm -hmm. so tragic, man.
Wow. Yeah. That's why they need the gospel, man. That's the just being handed over to a debased mind. Have you ever had any conversations with the the people who, you know, put the ashes of the dead on themselves and cut themselves and things like that? Have you ever have you ever talked to anyone in that? Oh, many times, many, many times. We were in the the, the oldest temple in Nepal last year. It's called Pashuputinath. And um Oh man, it, 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 the word Pashuputinath actually means uh, animal husband because, by the way, the Hindu mythology is filled with instances of bestiality, instances of, of homosexuality, transgenderism. Shiva and Vishnu, for instance, had a sexual relationship and where um, uh, Shiva, uh, he, 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 he changed his appearance into a beautiful woman. See, transgenderism and all of this is found in the Hindu mythology. It's mm -hmm. found in, um, but to answer your question, yes, uh, many of these sadhus, we call them sadhus or, or, or rishis or sannyasis or gurus, um, they, uh, they cover themselves with the ashes of the dead. And yeah, we've, we've given the gospel to many of them. We've given them uh, Bibles and tracts and spoken at, at length with them. And you look in their eyes, my friends, and their, their eyes are like, are, are like glossed over and, and many of them are, you know, they're on drugs. They, they, they've lost their minds, brothers. You just look in their eyes. Their eyes seem so empty, man. Uh, just, yeah, filled with evil, man. Yeah. And speaking of that, you know, one of the things I just want to also emphasize, too, is that when you're talking about the uh, the gender confusion or the distortion of the male and female uh, and even them worshiping that, is that one is neutrality is a myth, right? You're going to worship something. In the same way in Scripture when it talks about to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, you know, every religion on some level, it demands obedience and allegiance to, of your body. You think about even like statism, like the state, you know, with the, a lot of times when you look at an oppressive state, they demand allegiance of your body in one way or another. You need to go do this, take this, or else, uh, you know, you know, you think about all those examples, but also, you know, you mentioned about the origins of uh, transgenderism and, and the distorted sexuality. I think that's a direct result, too, brother, of uh, what it talks about in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 32, where Paul gives the direct, is explaining paganism uh, in such a way that's relevant to all aspects, whether it's Hinduism or any sort of, any sort of distorted view, uh, that Gnostic view or, or what have you, but it's talking about they worship the creation rather than the, than the creator. And then one of the immediate results, too, it says God gives them over to a debased mind. And then what you immediately have is a, a distorted view of sexuality and the distortion and a confusion between the roles of the male and the female. And so it's, I'm assuming just, you're very familiar with that passage too, brother. Like explain too, how, just on as a whole, what that actually looks like with your missionary work in India. Maybe you have a story or two as well too. <clears throat> right. It is <clears throat> most, most tragic to, uh, engage with these Hindu gurus, for example, um, and the radical Hindus. And yes, they are often the ones who foment uh, lynch mobs to violently oppose the preaching of the gospel. Brothers, if you come here and you open air preach, you take a Bible and you stand in, in, the, in the public square, you will instantly attract a crowd. Our Lord Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his own country among his own family. Not that we're prophets, but the phenomenon is the same. Uh, in this culture, if you open the Bible and you speak, you know, inverse, conversely, uh, because you're in a foreign country, you get great respect. 
They're just, you know, you've piqued their curiosity. This foreigner will come and talk. And so a large gathering of people will gather um, uh, eager to listen, but it's always a radical element in the crowd or particularly a Brahmin priest or a guru who becomes jealous, just like you see in the, in the book of Acts. The Jews are constantly provoked to jealousy. Because mm. Paul's getting all the attention, you know, Christ is getting all the attention rather. Yeah. And they're, they're moved to jealousy that they're losing their influence, their their sway over the over the mobs. And so then they, you know, what do they do? They foment a riot. And this has been our experience in India on so many occasions. I remember <clears throat> particularly uh, one time I was preaching in, in Hyderabad. And um, usually I lead a team of preachers, but that day um, no one was available. So I said, I'm not going to just stay home. I'm going to go out, you know, souls are dying, man. So I, I got my box of, of Telugu New Testaments, Telugu being the local language, about a hundred New Testaments. Mm. I got my amp, I got my stepladder and I went into the, into the, into the downtown area at a major intersection. And I began to preach. And after I had preached for uh, maybe 45 minutes, then uh, I, I learned the Telugu language. Uh, then I began to uh, distribute Telugu New Testaments uh, and, and engage in one-on-one -on -one conversations with the people. And someone comes up to me and he grabs me by my arm and he says, what do you think you're doing? And then he says, why are you spreading uh, this white man religion in our Hindu holy land? And I said, sir, I'm just here to propagate the truth. I'm here to preach the truth is what I said. And... <laughs> And I, 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 at that point, I attempted to de-escalate the situation and I attempted to walk away. And as I walked away, he grabbed me again and he, he screamed with like this blood curdling scream. Where do you think you're going? Why are you trying to escape? Why are you trying to escape? Only if you've done something wrong, are you trying to escape? And at this, um, there's a mob of, of like 30 to 40 men. And they, they, they pull me by the, the, the amplifier neck strap through the, through the, the intersection. And, 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 and they began to punch me and they began to hit me. And, and, and then they're saying, we're going to kill you and all these things. And I, I was holding on to vehicles that were passing by in the intersection. Like I grabbed onto like a, a motorcycle that, that was stopped in traffic at the, at the intersection. I said, yeah. please help me, please help me. call the police, do something. And no one would help me. And they're, they're dragging me, beating me. And, and they said, you must say, you must utter these words, Jay Sri Ram, you know, praise Lord Rama. I said, oh, oh we're going to kill you. you. You have to say this or we're not going to let you go. And I, and I said, I, I'm a disciple of my Lord Jesus. I will not say such a thing. And yeah. they punched me in the face again. And, they, and, and they're, they're dragging me and they're dragging me in front of their Hindu temple. And uh, <clears throat> then they said, they're going to force me to receive Tika on my forehead. And this is the brothers, this is the modus operandi of Hindu operatives in India. What they do is they take Christians and they beat them and they intimidate them and they bully them into taking tikka on their forehead and they make a video of it, right? They live stream it or they record it and they circulate it and they say, look at these Christian cowards. Uh, it, it's just, it's a very cruel method of, of, of is attempting demoralize Christians in India. You understand? When you say tikka, is that the typical uh, red dot that's on the forehead? That's what correct, that is? Correct. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And on the, what they call the Ajna Chakra, okay. um, the Kundalini model of the human body, the third eye, mm -hmm. supposedly of wisdom. So, and so they're over here beating me. And, and by God's grace, one of our church members uh, saw what was happening and he called the police and the police were able to rescue me right at the, at the, at the right time because they were 
trying to, they were trying to physically force me on my knees in front of their temple to receive their mark on my forehead. And I, and I will not, I, I, I call it a mark of the beast. I tell people. And, uh, so, um, yeah, and, and I, I was pleading with them. And, oh, get this, brothers. They, they were telling me, they're saying, why do you come to our land and you forcibly convert our people? I said, really? Really? You're over here beating me bloody and threatening to kill me, and you're accusing me of forcibly converting people? You're the one over here threatening to kill me unless mm -hmm. I praise your God. Yeah. <laughs> when I said that, they, 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 they actually caused them to think. But most of the mob were drunk. Just like in the book of Acts, you see when when riots are fomented, yeah. it says they, they they gather the worthless fellows, you know, like drunkards or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. Andrew, did you have a thought real quick? My, my, I'm just like, brother, I'm so glad in a, that you're okay, number one. Number two, I'm sure you have multiple stories of things like this happening uh, to you. And, man, I'm, I'm speechless, man. I'm thankful for you, number one. I'm thankful for the Lord Jesus for, you know, saving you and placing you there just to preach the gospel. Uh, one question is, did you ever go right back to that place, the same spot and preach again? That Yes. Oh, uh, I went back to that same spot. Matter of fact, the very next day, I, I, I knew one of the men in the mob was beating me. And I, I, I knew him personally. He was kind of a neighbor. He didn't, I, I lived right near this place. And I went to his house with a bag full of fruit. And I said, I just want you to know that I, I care for you. And I don't hold against you what you did to me. Uh, because my Lord taught me, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. And he's like, his jaw dropped. He was shocked that I would do that. Yeah. Uh, to God alone be the glory. But yes, I went back to that exact corner many times after that as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, excellent. And so one thing I, I want to also ask, too, as we kind of uh, end, end up wrap up the first part of uh, the of our discussion is that when you're looking at what your experience is like and the things that you've experienced and you think about, you know, your unique vantage point versus, you know, just a generic world religions class where you'll say, oh, Christianity, Buddhism, you know, Islam, Hinduism, and this, oh, these are just what people believe and that just, it is what it is. But when we actually look at your experience and your vantage point and what you're seeing, we have a unique worldview that actually gives explanations to what is going on both in the seen realm and also in the unseen realm. And so I mentioned too in Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 32, when I was talking about when Paul's kind of giving his thesis on paganism, when you also look at the gods of the new age, you know, we have an explanation for it too. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 through 17, it says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger, and they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, and to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And so, you know, in your case, would you make the case too that it, with your experience and just what you've seen with all the different practices, all the different temples, that there are also, these aren't just statues of, you know, wh whether it's, uh, whether it's Krishna, whether it's uh, any of these Hindu gods, that there's actually forces behind, demonic forces behind them. Like what, what sort of case would you make for that, both from either scripture, but also what experiences would you say would validate that as well too? Right. Well, yes, to, to, to reiterate what you're saying, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 uh, corroborates exactly, it reinforces, I should say, what the passage you just read, where Paul says, uh, I would have you know that the things which the Gentiles offer to idols, they worship, that they, they offer to devils and not to God. So Paul yes. is very explicit 
just like Deuteronomy, of course, you know, perfect consonance and harmony between the scriptures. Um, these are worshiping um, idols. I remember when I first came to India, gentlemen, and I was living in this hut in the village for several months. And um, every morning at five o'clock in the morning, we would get up, the pastor and I, and I would preach uh, through the book of Psalms and he would translate for me. Indians, especially in the villages, they rise very early. And at five o'clock in the morning, gentlemen, you're going to hear several things. You're going to hear Hindus doing their mantras over their loudspeakers on the top of their temples. They're going to Om Namah Shiva Om, and they're going to have Namah Shiva, and they're going to have these chants. Five o'clock in the morning, right? Then you're going to hear the mosque uh, uh, with the the Adan, the morning call to prayer, and and the recitation of the Shahada. Allah, so literally, you got five o'clock in the morning. You've got Muslims bombarding you, and you've got Hindus bombarding you, and then not to be outdone, the Christians are up at five in the morning, and uh, either they're playing, uh, they're playing a recording of a Christian song, or or they're out there preaching, and and so that's what we did. So I, I would mm. every morning for 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 several months I, at five o'clock in the morning I would preach, and so the Hindus, the local Hindu Brahmins, they put a curse outside of my house, and they they broke a coconut and they put a curse on me, and. Uh, <laughs> It's spiritual warfare. I mean, and not long after that, I was accosted by these by people. They, I was on my bicycle in town, just a few miles away, and they they rammed into me from behind. Man, they knocked me off my bicycle. They they got out of their vehicle about four to five men, and I was ready to defend myself. You know, army training. Who? But <laughs> the verse uh, came to my mind because this was the first instance of violence ever I experienced in India. The verse came to my mind: "The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them." And I, and I didn't come to India to be a street fighter. So I said, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna defend myself. Mm -hmm. And so these guys, they they took a like a, a tire iron man and they clonked me in, in the face. I have a scar on my forehead. They left, they 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 beat me unconscious. They they left me for dead. In, in broad daylight, I, and when I woke up, a police officer was pouring water on my face. I came to, I, I checked my clock. I had been unconscious for about nearly 30 minutes, and they had beaten me while I was unconscious because I had, like, bruises all over my body. And, and I, I came to, blood's coming out of my mouth. They beat me really severely, man, And because uh, I, I was the only white man in, in the town. These people, like, you know, the villages I go to, they never seen a white man before. This is off the beaten path, gentlemen. And... So the the spirit the nature of spiritual warfare is very real, very tangible in India. Uh, it's very potent. Um, yeah, man, and yeah, they 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 do their incantations. But we know that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. It's like right. here I am today, I'm still alive after many attempts in my life. Even in the U.S., the FBI tried to prevent me from coming here. The F just literally three months just. Three weeks to two and a half weeks before I flew back to Asia, the FBI invaded my home. About 12 guys in body armor on. Some of them had their hands on their weapons. If I had resisted, probably wouldn't be here right now. Yeah. They invaded my home. They took me into custody. Okay. The FBI now. Uh, and they released me the same day after a hearing with a judge on a computer screen in their, in their, in their, in their, in their uh, field office. Hmm. <laughs> and then when I was at the airport ready to fly back, I was at my departure gate. And three federal agents, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents. <laughs> it's just so ironic. You know, people <laughs> entering the country yeah. illegally. <laughs> Customs and Border, they've got nothing better to do but harass a missionary. We're going to say. <laughs> yeah. No, why, why would they think you're such a threat? Like, what in the world? Brother, it's, it's, you know, it's not us. It's truth. Truth is a threat. 
um, just truth. This this postmodern age of, of, of yeah of preference and pluralism as being prevailing uh, uh, principles. Uh, yeah, they are, they consider us a truth speakers a threat. Mm-hmm. They, they said you're not allowed to leave the country. And and I by God's grace, my phone was charged, and I was able to bring up the federal order. I, I specifically requested of the judge, please allow me to return to my work. I am a career missionary. That's my job. And I sent him many videos, many of our YouTube videos to the federal judge saying, look, look, we did earthquake relief. Look, we have our, our, our orphanage. These children, these little girls are at risk of being sex trafficked. We've rescued these girls. Mm. Look at this. And they just like, let him go back to his work. You know, I have no criminal history. There's no indication that I, I'll be in contempt of court. Everything's going to be online for years in yeah. New Jersey. The, well, and so no weapon formed against the project. And here I am today back on where I want to be, back where my family wants to be. And so, yes, they do do spiritual warfare. And, and often that manifests as physical warfare. I mean, just physical violence. But the Lord protects us. Not one hair of our head falls to the ground without our Heavenly Father knowing. And, yeah, so he keeps us, gentlemen. Mm. Amen. Excellent. Absolutely. Andrew, do you have any last thoughts or questions before we wrap up the first episode or any, any thoughts on what we discussed in this first segment? No, brother, I'm speechless right now. I'm speechless. No, this is this is really good. And I think what you're seeing here, and we'll delve into this in the next episode, is that um, a lot of when we talk about the New Age, even what we've talked about in previous episodes, you're kind of seeing small aspects of it, but very much in a filtered through the Western world. It's almost a very much a Westernized version of the New Age. And so I think what's really helpful uh, for you, Daniel, is that I think you, you have a very unique perspective perspective being on the ground. Uh, really, really a front. This is like a front lines report. This is like the Walter Cronkite on the on the grounds of uh, of the 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 hub center of the gods of the New Age. So, Daniel, just real quick before we jump into part two, I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, if people want to find out about you, what you're all about, and are interested in in, in just seeing the ministry that they do, uh, where how can they get a hold of you? Well, they can contact me via email. Um, and my email is gospelofglorymissions at gmail.com, gospelofglorymissions at gmail.com. Um, my Facebook name is uh, Daniel Stephen Kearney, my name. Mess- friend request message me there. Uh, that would be the easiest way. And, I, and I'm just an unprofitable servant, gentlemen. I mm-hmm. failed in many ways. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just the Lord, man. I, I, it's, just, it's just the Lord. Um, I'm unprofitable servant. Our Lord, brothers, he's the one who has saved us, and he's the one. It's his spirit in us. If it wasn't for him, I'd, I'd be I'd be worshiping these devils right along with them. He saved me from my sin. Yes, and uh, it's it just he he he's mighty to save, and he his grace is great. And yeah, we just want to tell everybody about him. So, hmm. but yeah, that's the best way to contact. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that, and so uh, thank you for hanging out with us, everyone. And uh, we will talk to you in part. Two of Gods of the New Age, as we uh, next time when we talk, when we uh, join up on cultists, we're entering into the kingdom of the cults. Talk to you guys soon.